Hey everybody, welcome to Sporting Dog Talk. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today's episode is brought to you by Canine Athlete. Canine Athlete has a couple different supplements, including the new dog three-in-one supplement that helps accelerate recovery, reduce pain, and give your dog a quality of life boost. They've also got Hydrate and Recover, which is an excellent thing to add to your dog's water uh, throughout the summer when you're training and it's hot out. They've also got the Canine Pro Daily Probiotic for digestive and immune health. Essentially, what this does is help your dog's gut microbiome function properly. This is uh, this addresses the digestive system and keeps everything going the way it's supposed to, whether you're at home or you're on the road. Go to canineathlete.com, letter K, number nine, athlete.com. Use the code SDT20, and they're going to give you 20% off your first order. This episode is also brought to you by Lucky Duck. Lucky Duck has the Lucky Kennel Intermediate and the Lucky Kennel Large, both of these crates are awesome they're lightweight they are bulletproof they are not really don't shoot them uh they are built to last and they are built to function really really well i absolutely love my lucky kennel uh, they also make a whole bunch of waterfowl products, blinds, decoys. They've got predator hunting gear. They've got turkey hunting stuff. Check out LuckyDuck.com. You'll see a bunch of really good products there. And of course, this episode is brought to you by Purina. If you're looking for some wet food, maybe some dry food, if you got a little pupster coming and you need some kibble that's formulated specifically for young dogs, maybe you've got an older senior dog, or you're running a hard charger that needs the protein and fat offered in ProPlan Sport, Purina has you covered. I feed my lab, who's eight years old, ProPlan Sport chicken and rice, 30-20, for a ton of reasons. But even at her age, she still gets after it, and she needs the energy to hunt all day or to train uh, in the water and on the land, and she needs the support for her joints and immune system, and ProPlan Sport gives her that. My guest today is Marissa Jensen. We had Marissa on a long time ago, right when we launched this podcast, and I wanted to get her back on just because I, I absolutely love her, and she's she's really into dogs and hunting on her own and has embraced hunting later in life, and so I wanted to, I wanted to put together this episode with her just talking about the hurdles that new hunters will face. Uh, a lot of people get a bird dog. They want to take that bird dog out and go hunting. They don't really know how to find a spot. They don't really know how to get over uh, some of these these speed bumps to to confidence in the field and confidence hunting with your dog. Marissa has recently gone through a lot of this different stuff. So she's a great guest for this. It was so much fun talking to her. She's so insightful and has such good information. Uh, just, just a blast. I think you're going to really like it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We really appreciate your support. We appreciate you telling your dog-loving friends about us. So, so honestly, thank you for that. Come here, bear. I'm dead, bear. I'm dead. That dog is family. Do something with a dog, it, it improves your overall quality of life. But girl. Marissa, welcome back to Sporting Dog Talk. Thanks, Tony. I'm excited to be here. I, I'm excited to have you. I've I've said this on a few other podcasts, but you are kind of my spirit animal. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me happy or scared for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should should we just quickly lay out why so the guests have a, have an understanding? You you were on uh, way back, I mean, like episode fifteen, seventeen, something. So it's been a while, uh, but we've we've gotten to know each other, and uh, we we check into each other's lives. And your your updates frequently revolve around dogs, obviously, uh, also obviously. amphibians and reptiles, Correct. of which both I'm a huge fan, and generally. A general disgust at the at the general public, and and having to deal with people, and I'm like this this girl speaking my language. Yeah. Yep, I can't help it. I mean, it's what is there not to like about reptiles and amphibians? I mean, they I, they're amazing. I just have to stop everything that I'm doing if I see one. So, um, can I can I tell you a quick story about that before we actually get into dogs? So we have absolutely we have a pond in our backyard. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to buy this house because it's. You know, I love frogs. I was hoping someday I'd have kids that I could catch frogs with. And I wanted to train my dog in it because I knew I was going to have a duck dog. And so we have a shared ownership of this pond. It's a wetland behind our house. Our next door neighbors sold their house. And we we have new neighbors in there now. And I was talking. They have, they have two little girls. 
and and then it's the parents and I was talking to them and they came from a kind of a roundabout way from London to New York to the suburbs of the Twin Cities. Hmm. They are not uh, swampy, frog-loving people. <laughs> and I was talking to the the dad, and I said, oh, if your little girls are into, you know, getting a little bit muddy and catching frogs and mud minnows and stuff, I'm like, this is the place. And he said, "It. we don't like any of that stuff. He said, my wife's shoes touched a frog one time, and she threw them away. And I was oh. like... Uh, maybe you shouldn't have bought a house on a freaking like, we could look out back and see Shrek back there, you know, like, that's, that's where we live. So Sasquatch, they're, they're in for a rude awakening. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. And I, I keep getting sidetracked. I promise the listeners I'll get I'll get my shit together here. But let's talk quick about that guy who had the the ladders on top of his truck that you texted me the other day. What's oh, the- my God. <laughs> So this, I can't tell you how much I appreciated this because I was in a turkey blind all day by myself with zero turkey action after like seven o'clock in the morning. And so at six o'clock at night, you, you chime in with this series of pictures and what what was going on there? Let me, let me just preface by saying I truly felt bad for this guy. I felt for him and no, I could, I may have taken advantage of it for my own humor, but (laughs) so so, you know, just wasn't feeling the greatest this week. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go swing in. And I'm going to get this, this smoothie. Those are always so good when you're not feeling well. And I'm waiting in this long line. And this poor guy, um, I think it was a plumber or some kind of a working truck that had ladders on the top. And the ladder got stuck in the awning of this fast food restaurant. And I heard the just crash at first. And I, I couldn't figure out because when you first look at it, you have to really look to see that the, the ladder is touching the awning. So it took me a while to figure out what was going on. He tried to reverse. He tried to move a little bit forward. You could see him, you know, manipulating this, this vehicle. And so finally he just owned it and he just took off and tore the whole awning off with it, with the light, there's wires exposed. I'm just dying. I am laughing. My windows are down. I didn't realize how loud I was being. And so he pulls over to the side. They can't get it unstuck. I mean, the ladder has actually pierced through like the canvas and workers are coming out. People are walking up with their phones, taking pictures, and they just, they can't get this thing off. And, oh, I I can't remember the last time I laughed that hard. I mean, I had tears rolling down my face. And I was like, this is, this is a horrible moment for me. That yeah, so I'm you were so this. concerned with this guy's, uh, you, were, <laughs> you, you felt so bad for this guy. Your first instinct was to pull out your phone and take pictures while you were laughing so hard you were bawling. I know. I promise I am not a bad person, but I couldn't help it. Yeah. Uh, it was one of those moments where you, you see these pictures on social media of things like this, or you see the aftermath that I've never been witness to the actual experience. And it was amazing. I'm so glad I got to see it. Yeah. I think, I think that as adults, we are we we are destined to have one kind of moment like that, like once a decade, where you're just like, "Oh my god, I'm yeah. such an idiot," and this is so embarrassing. Like, I think we need that just to knock us back a, a little bit. I have those every week. So that's how I justified laughing about it. I was like, oh man, I get it. I get it. Like that is me. I I have a saying where I tell people I am Murphy's law. I don't just, Murphy's law doesn't happen to me. I, I am it. So I understood where he was coming from. What's the last really embarrassing thing that happened to you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I can't, so I can't think of any, I know that there has been stuff that has happened since this, but, um, oh, okay. For instance, um, I just, I just did a column in our quill forever magazine about it, but I got royally stuck multiple times on an upland hunt this last year. And in my efforts to get unstuck, literally slid into the ditch. Um, I'm the person that has my pants split open in the grocery store. When I bend over on the bottom rack that happened this last year. I mean, it's just like, random weird stuff like that where you're like really kidding (laughs) don't take this the wrong way but i totally believe that you have a lot of embarrassing moments in your life (laughs) what does that mean is that why (laughs) i don't know you just give up give off that vibe hey so what happened with the getting stuck where were you um so i was in um southeast nebraska 
where there's a, a little pocket of area that I really like to hunt because there's pheasant, quail, and prairie chicken. Um, and so it's all part of our open fields and waters program. It's public access walk-in. And it had, it had rained quite a bit and the roads there are a little bit sketchy. And this road that I went down, typically I don't go on, um, but they had actually done some work to it and put limestone on top of it. Well, that was extremely deceiving and <laughs> did not work. Um, I think it actually made it worse. So, uh, and I do a lot of my hunting by myself. So I was by myself and um, I have two dogs now. And my vehicle doesn't really support, uh, I don't have four wheel drive. So as I continue to tell the story, people aren't going to feel bad for me because they're going to say, well, no wonder you got stuck. You know, how does it not happen more often? But I have this little front wheel drive crossover and, uh, two kennels don't fit in the back. So not only did I get stuck, but as I left my car door open, my, my short hair decided to help and get out and play fetch with corn stalks and sticks and everything else I'm trying to shove under the wheels and then proceed to jump in and out of the car. And so literally just painted the inside of my car with mud. I mean, it was, it was impressive. (laughs) How how did you get out? So I had to, I had to call my father. Um, the, the, the closest towing place, um, just laughed. I mean, they were like, no, we're, we are not coming to get you. Our, our truck's going to get stuck. We're not doing that. Um, and then the closest city, so Lincoln, Nebraska, would have been the closest major city to me. Um, they wanted to charge, trying to remember what it was. It was an outrageous amount of money per mile just to get to me, let alone pull me out. Um, and so, yeah, I had to call call dad and it was an hour and a half for him to get to me. So I just hunted why I waited. What else are you going to do? I had sent him, um, a Google, like, this is where I am on Google. And he called me about 30 minutes later. And he's like, I don't, I don't understand. I I was going to drive to this location, but you're all over the place. And I was like, Oh, I'm hunting. (laughs) So he was tracking you. He was tracking me. Yep. Did, did you shoot anything? I did. Yeah. So, it, and it was overall, you know, a good trip. And that was, um, the, the article I wrote on it was kind of all about perspective and how, um, it, you know, everybody has bad moments, but it's kind of what we make of them. And uh, it actually ended up being a really cool little hike, um, where both dogs, uh, my, my youngest Yeti is this, that was her first true real season. Um, she just turned two and, you know, at the end of the day, I had Reese, my older short hair on point. Yeti was honoring when she doesn't even, hasn't even been trained to honor, um, you know, just kind of happened naturally with her picking up the scent. And it was like that, that moment just made it all, made all of it worthwhile. Was it a rooster? Uh, quail. Oh. Yes. So it was a good, it was a really good outing. And I shot my first quail, uh, well, not technically over her. She was in the vicinity, but um, she got to experience that. So that there's a cautionary tale there as far as traveling anywhere to hunt. But Nebraska seems particularly uh, good at like you'll you'll pull up a map and go, okay, well we get to this you know management area or this this walking area or whatever, just this road, and then you pull up and it's a goat path that's not you know especially depending on when you if you know if it's september and it's been hot not a big deal probably but man if you do some of those late season hunts or you start getting in and when they get wet it can be just brutal out there yeah and, and it's awful in you know december especially january because you get that um topping of ice and then if it warms up while you're out there i mean you've already committed you're already on those roads and it starts to melt and that can get a little dicey um, yeah but some of those best hunting spots, if you're willing to walk in, you know, half mile, mile to get to those places that nobody else is going because the roads are bad, those are money. Yeah. Oh, they are. And that it's a, it's a good lesson there. You know, this, this has come up on several podcasts now or several of our episodes where you kind of, it's easy to kind of get locked into like, okay, this is the spot I'm going. And you, maybe you do a little research on Onyx or you look it up or whatever, then you get out there and you can't get there. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, you've probably hunted Bessie in the middle of the state, right? The Bessie National Forest. I I drove down there one time, you know, and that's 90,000 acres. I mean, it's enormous. 
And I drove down there one time after a monster storm went through. You couldn't get in there. Like you literally yeah. couldn't get, there was 90,000 acres there. And it's like, well, <laughs> what are you going to do? And if that's the only place you have where you're like, okay, this is, this is it. This is our destination. You have to be a little careful about that with hunt planning because that plan B, C, D is almost always comes into play. Yeah. Well, and you never, I mean, if you hadn't been out there yet that year, I mean, habitat can change. You're not sure, you know, what they're, they're working on as far as management. So it's always good to have those backup plans and to just keep those expectations in check. Mm -hmm. Do you like, what's, what's the ratio in your life of hunting solo versus hunting with people? Um, I mean, on a typical year, I would say like 90% of the time is solo. Um, now that being said this last year and really the last year and a half, um, it's almost been entirely with other people, um, whether that's been for, you know, events, um, learn to hunt events that we're helping to host, or, um, you know, if I, I've got to join our, um, organization's rooster road trip, um, and then just made some hunting buddies this last year, we went to Wyoming for the first time to hunt sage grouse. And so I went with a couple of friends there. So it's been a really unusual time for me the last year and a half, but I do enjoy it too. I found, I mean, I think, I think why I like to hunt solo so much is that I like to just follow the dog. And, um, I don't, I don't think I'm a very controlling rigid, you know, person. I'm starting to wonder more and more all the time, but when, when I hunt with a big group, um, I just get really stressed if I don't know where everybody's going and, and we're all kind of all over the place and there's not like a real set, um, you know, movement happening. And so I just like to follow my dog and I've met a couple, um, of individuals who are very similar and we get in the field together and it just works. We don't have to try at it. It's just, we just flow naturally together. And that's when you find that it, it's kind of, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. There's, there's a thing that happens a lot with, uh, people going on over the road trips and it's like, you got to recruit your buddies and you got to recruit the guy from work who kind of likes to hunt and whoever the brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and you get, it's, it's pretty hard to do sometimes. Like it's, it, it's better. And it's, this is a, this is sort of a confidence thing with a lot of people, but to go solo or go with one person who you really trust, who, who has their own dog is usually the best. I mean, cause it's just mm -hmm. a, that dynamic tends to work if you both have your own dog and kind of do your own thing. But a lot of people have have high expectations for their first trip out of state, wherever. They bring three, four, five other people and they go and they're like, man, this is a lot more stressful than I thought. It's stressful on the dog. And it's just not as much fun for I mean, I know some people enjoy it, but a mm -hmm. lot of people don't and they don't know they won't enjoy it until they go. Yeah, it definitely comes down to, I think, personalities and what your expectations are on the trip. And I mean, I think there's a lot of different factors that go into it. And um, until you kind of try all those different ways, you don't really know what what works best for you and what you prefer. Yeah, well, I mean, it it depends on what you try to get out of it, right? Like I, I think about our last trip, the, the last trip I took to Nebraska, which I think was uh, maybe January 2020, it was right before COVID hit. Uh, we had, you know, and that was stormy, messy. It was, a, it was a rough trip. We had a rough one until we found a place on the last day that it was full of pheasants and it was, you know, it was public and it, but what was beautiful about it wasn't that we killed a bunch of birds. It was the freaking dog work was amazing. Like it was just, it's set up with, with various kinds of CRP and different cover and grassland where every flush was like fun it wasn't just yeah. random like you're like this is coming that dog's going and when you when you do something like that and you realize like okay this this I, I'm living off of that memory of that one day hard still and what I realize is like the more you kind of minimize those other distractions and the other things that can come in and and mess with that dog work you know not even unintentionally of course it's just distractions and other things you realize like okay this is sort of the the bread and butter we're like this is why i'm here and mm -hmm. that that makes a big difference yeah yeah it really does and i mean the dog work is a big i mean that's that's a very large part of why i do upland hunting and so when you get to when you get to just follow your dog and not really care if you're in line with everybody else and you know at the right pace at the right you know direction it, it kind of takes away some of those 
um, those challenges, I guess. Yeah. You, I, I'm sure we talked about this before, but I can't remember you. Did you start out hunting? Did you grow up hunting? No. So I started hunting when I was about 30 years old. Um, yeah. and my first, my first hunt was turkeys. Um, but the, the upland hunting is, and I still, you know, I'll, I'll turkey hunt. I haven't gone this year. I've wanted to, it just hasn't worked out. Um, and I like waterfowl hunting and I'd like to try deer hunting. Um, but it's just, it's been upland 100%. Um, and it's the dogs. I mean, that's, I, I think we talked about it, you know, on the previous recording that we did, um, you know, but I, I grew up and I was a vet tech for many years and, um, did work with training search and rescue dogs, um, shuts and dogs, all of that. And so the, the dog aspect has really just been really important to me. I don't, I don't think I would be as in love with it if it weren't for the dogs. Um, but I, I mean, I would still love it. It's just that it's that complete picture. Yeah. What, what was, I, all this is coming back to me now. I have to apologize to the listeners. I, I used to drink a lot, so I can't remember anything, but now, now when, you, <laughs> when you're saying, uh, this, it's all coming back. Uh, what, what were the good things? What were the bad things when you started? Cause that's, you know, starting at 30, we, we have people listening who, who reach out quite often who, who get gun dogs and they go, I want to do this. And they're various ages and just like, don't really even know where to start and are just, or they're worried, like rightfully worried. So like mm-hmm. when you think back to that time, when you're like getting that introduction to turkey hunting, getting that introduction to upland hunting, what were some of the good things? And what were some of the things where you're like, this sucks. I, I would not go about this with somebody else new. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, I didn't have a lot of experience with firearms prior either. Um, in fact, the, the other one experience I had before I started hunting was um, with a bunch of friends out in the country. Hey, let's learn how to shoot guns. And it, it, you know, didn't teach me to hold it properly. And so I just had this, you know, almost fear of them. Um, and I remember when my, my cousin was trying to get me ready for my first turkey hunt and he was like, pretend that you're pretend that you're shooting a shotgun. And I flinched when I wasn't even actually shooting a shotgun. And he's like, whoa, we need to work on this. Um, you know, and so there was that automatic response um, that I had with, you know, just totally subconscious. And I remember the first time I went on the upland hunt, I didn't have, I didn't do any, um, you know, clay target shooting, which I would definitely recommend for somebody if they've never done that before. I mean, that's huge. Just knowing how to bring the gun up, follow the target. Um, because I remember the, the pheasant got out in front of me and I just looked at it. I was like, I, how do you respond that quickly? Like, how do you... <laughs> So I think it would have helped to have a little bit of that practice ahead of time. And it, it becomes, um, you know, muscle memory too, at some point. And the more that you can kind of practice ahead of time and get yourself prepared, that's, that's going to help tremendously. Um, and that was tough for me. I also, you know, when, when I was comfortable, um, you know, and maybe that that's going to be different for everybody. For me, it was pretty early on because I felt more comfortable being out there by myself. Um, but that really helped me get my stride, um, get to know my dog and get a feel for how to work an area without pressures of other people. Um, you know, and it's intimidating, I think sometimes as an adult, and I'm sure, you know, kids go through this too, but, um, you know, having other people watch you and if you miss a shot, you know, do they judge you? And, um, so for me, I enjoyed going out there on my own. Um, I did get lost a few times and, uh, some of that, especially, you know, pheasant hunting, some of that, that grass and that, um, you know, that, that property that can get really tall. And so you lose sight of your vehicle, you, you get turned around. Um, but then I discovered Onyx. And so <laughs> that is, I set that track feature every single time I hunt, even if it's somewhere I've hunted a million times. Um, I just, I always have that on backup. I really like that feature. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about getting lost. Let's let's back up a second to the gun thing. This is this is like particularly relevant to this audience because if you're gonna if you're gonna hunt and you're gonna be around dogs, most likely your first hunt's going to be an upland hunt, right? It might be a waterfall hunt, but really, seventeen steps before that to familiarize yourself with a shotgun. And I'm seeing this with my little girls with the turkey hunting, and you know they want to 
they're going to duck hunt this year for the first time, but it's going to be like a very controlled environment and like I'll handle mm-hmm. dogs. They'll handle a single shot shotgun and it'll yeah. be, it, it'll be as controlled as you can make a wild bird hunt. Right. But right. what I realized with them and from hearing stories like yours and, and, and other people is you, you have to start with just like the basic understanding of the functionality of it. And it seems so like elementary to me who grew up with guns and I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this, but the reality is like, you're just, it's like an unfamiliar, scary thing and sitting down on a bench with your 20 gauge and shooting paper for a little while and just getting used to it. And then shooting some, you know, clay pigeons and, and, and then getting into a situation where if you're, if you're hunting upland birds, like, reducing the amount of other things, other things you have to worry about is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's, we did a, I learned a hunt event a couple of years ago with a group of women and, you know, we went grouse hunting and when you're, you know, public land grouse hunting, it's hit or miss if you're even going to see birds when you're out there. I mean, it's not that that's not the case with all upland hunting, but especially with prairie grouse, they're, they're tough to find. And, you know, I remember being worried that the the participants were going to be disappointed that we we didn't even get into birds. And what they said to me just really struck me and it made a lot of sense, but you know, for them just being able to practice walking with the gun was huge. They're like we we were worried we were going to trip and that, you know, if the hills were too steep, how we would handle it and they're like so that that was worth the entire hunt was just walking with the gun, knowing how to, you know, make sure that muzzle was pointed in the right direction, how I'm going to handle it. Um, and it, those are things I think we absolutely all take for granted until um, you are that new person and you're going through those experiences and trying to figure that out. Yeah. To time in the field, thinking about that stuff matters a lot. And it, you know, it's, it, I, I'm super guilty of this. And a lot of people are aware when they, they take somebody out new, you kind of forget that stuff and you're like, we got to get them birds. We got to get them on yeah. birds. And you kind of, you prioritize that above everything else. And that can be a mistake because that's not, that's not why everybody's out there. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's fun to shoot some prairie grouse or roosters or whatever. But the reality is like, there's a lot going into those initial hunts beyond just having some dead critters. Yeah. And, and that's definitely, I mean, you want somebody to have fun and find success, um, you know, regardless of what that success is, because everybody's opinion of what success is in the field is a little different. Um, but, you know, I would definitely caution mentors. It's great to want to get them that bird, but to try and keep that, um, that hope and that intensity in check a little bit. Cause sometimes that can be really overwhelming for the mentee where they're like, if I don't get a bird, are they going to be disappointed? Are they going to think that, you know, I didn't do a good job and that I messed up. And, um, you know, so it's, it's important to kind of, you know, always keep that in mind when you're taking somebody new into the field and you know, just making it a good experience. But, little things like making sure you have food and water and warm clothes and things like that sometimes are even more important. Yeah. The, uh, a, a couple things you see with kind of the comfort level and the, the physicality of it are people who, you know, they, they overdress a lot. It's, 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 it's an art to know what to wear when really you're going to go hike all day. Like it's, you know, we, this happens. I, I see this every single year when I invite people to hunt with me in the late season in Minnesota. They look at the forecast and go, "Holy balls!" Like I gotta bundle <laughs> up. And I'm like, "Don't bundle up. Like just understand for the first ten minutes you're gonna be really cold, and then after that you're gonna be fine unless we stop for too long." You see that a lot, and then you see people uh, kind of underestimate even like a uh, you know if you think of a grassland hunt out there in where you live or you know a little bit farther west from where you live where it's like, oh, it's nice knee-high grass and it's kind of rolling hills. Like, go do that all day. Like, can you go do that all day? You know, and and that's so, if you get with somebody who's super enthusiastic and wants to cover ground like crazy and you're not comfortable with it or you're not ready for that, like, that's a bad hunt already. Just like being overdressed, underdressed, it's tough. Yeah, there's, I mean, upland hunting is a workout and, and it it causes you to use muscles that you might not, I mean, I remember the first time I hunted, um, like really, really hunted uh, a waterfowl production area for roosters. Holy cow, my hip flexors. I was like, this is horrible <laughs> because you're moving up and over so much. And I know I'm listeners can't necessarily see my hand movements, but <laughs> I'm recreating it and it, it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, it is. And it's, but it's necessary. So this is, this is one thing that 
you know, in, in you know, public land hunting is really hot right now. It's really hot in the in the big game world, but the reality is, is a lot of us are just hunting public land more because that's that's where we have access to, and there are birds out there. But if you look at like what you're talking about with a waterfall production area, you go in there to hunt some roosters, and you look and there's a big cattail slough and there's a nice worn path all the way around the cattail slough and you're like, well, my dog will run in there and and point the birds or flush the birds and those roosters are going, we've seen this movie 5,000 times, guys. We're just going to go into the middle <laughs> and it's, if you want to have a good hunt, it's like if, if you get where you're talking about kind of mixed bag hunting uh, where you might, you might run into prairie grouse, you might run into quail, you know, you look at that grassland spreading out there and then there's one patch of like, plum thicket or sumac or something out there you're like that's where the quail are but a lot of times they're right in the middle of that stuff and it's just not so simple it's just like getting close and letting the dog especially running a young dog you got to get in there and bust some brush and it sucks sometimes but that's where the birds are oh yeah you're definitely going to come out uh, a little little battered and it's totally worth it it's it's scars right you know people <laughs> dig scars so <laughs> yeah, chicks dig scars that's what they, they tell me <laughs> well that's what i was gonna say but that doesn't work for me so <laughs> <laughs> it could it, well no <laughs> i don't know i'm covered in scars and so far it doesn't seem to be that it's not going that well for me uh, but anyway uh that that idea that that's like another kind of barrier to it is okay well i can it's easy to find hunting land now and you can find places to go and you know, a two minute search on your phone can turn up thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. But where are the birds in that land? And you really have to think about this from the perspective of what is the, the average hunter probably going to be a little bit lazy. What are they going to do? And how if you were if you were living out there and you were a little three pound bird and every day somebody was trying to kill you with their dogs, what would you do? Where would you go and how would you react to that? And this, this all goes right back to what you talked about earlier, where if you're with six people and they're in a, you know, gang hunt, line up, go, you might, you might cheat toward the easier stuff to keep up or everybody might, because they're like, well, we're going to cover this much of, you know, X amount of land when you might actually be better by yourself busting through real cover at a, at a slow crawl just to be Mm -hmm. where the birds are and, and pace it the way you have to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, work, work smarter and not harder. Right. Um, and there's a lot to be said about getting to know, and and this is the case with all game and, you know, any of these activities is know what you're hunting, you know, what are they eating? Um, what time of day is it? Are they going to be out feeding? Are they going to be, um, you know, cooling off somewhere or, you know, what's that activity look like? And, um, you know, it's, it makes me think of fly fishing a little bit because I love fly fishing and we call it match the hatch. And you're looking at what's hatching right now. What are the fish eating? Well, same goes with, you know, upland birds as well. Um, when I prairie grouse hunt, for instance, I'm always looking for rose hips always because I typically find sharp tailed grouse where there's rose hips. Um, so just getting to know the species and sometimes it takes a while and it's just going to come from experience and spending time out there. Um, but those are things that just kind of pay attention to. Uh, you know, and like you mentioned with cattails, those birds become educated um, pretty quick. And, you know, simple things as far as slamming the car door, they learn that noise pretty, pretty fast. And so, you know, just adjusting what you normally would do to try and come out a little bit more successful. Yeah. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, anything you can get to know like that, like you're talking about with the rose hips, like any of that stuff, is just you file that away and it's it's going to help you out. Like, where were they last year when we came in here? Why? Like, was there a cornfield, a pit cornfield off of this fence line, or what, what? What was going on? Or was it super windy? Was it raining? You start to you start to layer that stuff in there. And if you if you go someplace new, like I'll never forget when we when we went out to Nebraska the first time, and we're like, we've never. I, I had killed one sharp tail in my life in South Dakota, but I'm like, we've never got into sharpies and prairie chickens. Like I wanted, I want that experience. And we, you know, predictably they kicked our ass. We, we lucked into one flock just coming over a hill right away. So that like, that really gave us something to live off of for a while, but it wasn't until one morning where we're sitting there or we we were driving up to this area. We're going to go hunt. And I just looked and there's a flock of Sharpies flying. And then we're seeing these prairie chickens and they were flying out and they were landing in these little pine trees sunning. 
And I'm like, oh my God, we just sat and watched and then we just got clued into a whole bunch of stuff they were doing. And it was just a, it, it, part of it was just luck. We just happened to see them. But then we're like, here's a pattern. Like this is right away in the morning. It's cold. They're catching some sun and little stuff like that. The more you do it and the more you get out there and just experience that stuff and get your butt kicked, the more you layer in some of that experience and go next time. And it's, it's never the same next time, but at I least, know. at least you have something to work <laughs> off of. Well, and I think, and this is how I like to look at it is every single hunt that you go on, regardless of if you shoot something or not, if you look at it that way, it's always successful. Then you're, you're learning regardless of if you, you know, have a bird in hand or not. Um, they weren't here. Well, why weren't they? And you, that's the word you use. Why? And I think if that you could approach every hunt that way, you're going to always take something away from it. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier, like the fear when you go out, you're a newbie and you go out and you're like, it's, it weighs on you. Like, I really want to get one. If it come, if it flushes in front of me, I want to get it. Like, and then that's the worst thing to happen because then you start getting inside your head and you, you go off of kind of that instinct mode and it's, it's a great way to miss. And I, I have times, probably every time I hunt, but certainly like dozens of times each season where I miss birds that I knew were coming up. Like I had every, every, every advantage in the world still just flamed out. And when you go out and hunt more and hunt with people who are just, just in it for the love, like you see that and it, it just, it helps you realize like, you're going to go screw that up. Like you're, you're, you're going to shoot at quail flying in the air. You're going to miss them. Like <laughs> yeah. out, that, that trip that when we were down in, uh, and an attitude so important here, when we were down in Nebraska and that storm came in, and we had, we hunted the first whole day, never, never killed a bird. Like very few, I, I think we probably, I don't even remember if we shot. Anyway, second day, I'm like, we don't go to Nebraska and blank. Like this doesn't happen. And we hunted all day and we, we cover ground and nothing. And I remember walking, like, I'm like, okay, I can see the truck. I'm going to skirt around this, this cattail slough and just work my way back. I could see my buddy, you know, 200 yards out working his dog. And I looked down and there's a perfect fresh set of rooster tracks and I was like so convinced that there were no birds in there that I'm just like, even though I've done this since I was freaking 11 years old, I just looked at that. I was like, that this is just, it like didn't even really register with me. And I walked along and he flushed perfectly straight away from me and I missed him with both barrels, like, like nothing. And I'm just like, ah, all I've wanted for two days was to just connect on one. <laughs> and when I, when, when the world shows me, Hey dude, there's a rooster right there in front of you. And then the dog shows you and you still miss. It just happens. It's hard, you know, and, and kind of thinking about, you know, individuals that are getting started, I 100% recommend, you know, if you, if you don't start with the bird dog first and then get into hunting, try a bunch of different dogs because, you know, what you're describing, I, I love my short hairs and I'm not sure that I'll go away from pointers because I love the dog work. I just love watching them. I love the points. I love the honoring, all of that. But there's a lot of times that I think that I would probably be more successful. And I can say this because it makes me feel better, but I would probably be more successful if I had a flusher because that moment that that dog goes in point, I'm in my head, hardcore. And I'm thinking the whole time, I have to get this bird. I have to, this is going to be perfect. It's going to flush this way. I'm going to get it. And I miss them all the time. And a lot of the times the birds that I harvest are when my dogs bump them or I bump them and they flush wild. And I didn't know what was there. Um, so it's good to just get a feeling for like, what's the best dog for you. And there's a lot of different things that play into that, not just the style and the range and all of those things, but some of it is how you operate best, you know, on how that bird's going to flush for you. You know, that's a, that's a super interesting point because it's very common to believe that having that dog locked up on that tripod point and telling you, Hey boss, there's one right here, get ready is always easier. And what you're saying there is my entire life, I've shot better, whether with a bow or with guns is just instinctive, not, not like not having time to get ready, really. Yeah. Yep. No, it's, it's pretty much if, if there is a gorgeous point, I might as well just take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's a weird sales pitch for flushers, but it works for me. <laughs> there you go though. <laughs> but it is, I mean, that, that's, I, I have buddies, I, I've, inter, I've brought a lot of people out and I, I, 
people who are not uh, super experienced wing shooters. And they'll like ask me for advice. I'm like, I don't know. Like I've never thought about a single shot I've ever taken. Like the only time there, there, there'll be like maybe two birds a season where I remember like the bead swinging through, like where, where clearly I can go back in my head and go, yeah, that, that one felt right. Otherwise it's all a blur. And then you like, you piece in that information, like what you're talking about is because that, that bird the dog works happening in real time with a flusher and it's real dynamic it's like when you when it unfolds you think back and you're like yeah i noticed that dog i just noticed that change boom bird came up you know sometimes you see him get birdie for a long time or whatever you know it varies but a lot of time it's so fast that you're not even really registering even though you are like subconsciously almost you're not sitting there going okay now the dog is super birdie and it's going to come over here you're just like in the moment pull that shotgun up and bang, shotgun up and bang. And sometimes stuff falls out of the sky. Yes. Sometimes that's yeah. in my case. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, it, this is a, this is a good thing to talk about because it happens. It, it's a certainty that's going to happen to anyone who goes any kind of wing shooting endeavor. It's going to happen, but it's, it's also, you're going to go streaky and you're going to, you're going to have a couple in a row where you're just, top of the world and then you're going to have other times where you just suck and you realize how often it's just tied some sometimes it's circumstantial right like you can't hear them coming up or something's going on but a lot of times it's just in your head and you'll realize like man i'm i'm really distracted about this shit at work or this idiot who tore down the awning at hardy's or whatever (laughs) you know i'm I'm not he listens to this and i just want to say i am sorry for laughing i know i we should we shouldn't say that because uh, we we all do dumb stuff like that, uh, but you realize you're not in it. Your your head's not in the game, and that matters. And that that matters to not only just your success in the moment, but to your enjoyment of it overall. And it's it's a it's, it can be a hard place to get into and check into sometimes. Yeah, and it, it can be hard to pull yourself out of that if you um, you get into a slump, like you mentioned, and you just start to like, well, gosh darn it, like what am I doing wrong, and what, and you just overthink it it's really, really easy to do. Um, you know, and that's where if you can change your perspective and think about, you know, every time I go out, it's an opportunity to get outside. It's an opportunity to watch my dogs, get some fresh air, learn something and try and set up success in that way. And the rest is just a bonus. Then, you know, you can't go wrong, but it's easier to say that when you're not in those slums. So, (laughs) well, it is, I mean, it's, this is another great benefit to having lots of experiences. You realize it doesn't really matter. Like if you, mm-hmm. if you go kill a bunch of birds or don't kill very many birds, it doesn't matter. You know, and it, we, we run into this in the deer world all the time where we're obsessed with big bucks and people get really frustrated because it's very difficult. It's very difficult to go out and shoot it, it, mature bucks consistently. And I'm like, it doesn't matter anyway, guys. Like it, nobody cares, but you like, so w- there has to be more to this than that. Otherwise it sucks. And you yep. just realize like, you know, the times that you're putting pressure on yourself, a lot of times it's like there's some kind of social pressure, like you're talking about you're hunting with a whole bunch of people or you went on your out-of-state trip and you're trying to justify spending that money and that time. You know, you don't want to go back and tell your coworkers you flamed out on four days of bird hunting. You know, like that sucks. If that's the case, just lie. They're, they're not going to know anyway. Get somebody to Photoshop some roosters into your pictures. Who cares? Hey, can I hold that bird for a second? Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I've keep, never done that. Keep an eye out for road kills. Pick them up. Whatever. Um <laughs> Or, you know, the other thing that you see, I, I witnessed this just firsthand and it was a, it was a meltdown of like a colossal level as far as wing shooting. He'll never listen to this. He's like that guy with the, the awning. I, I hope he doesn't listen to this. Anyway. <laughs> My brother-in-law last, last fall, I, and I've talked about this a bunch, but he's got this little yellow lab first, first season. He, he used to wing shoot. He used to, he used to do a lot of, uh competitive shooting. He used to do a lot of grouse hunting, got out of it for like the last 10 years. He got himself a pup, really, really good, yellow lab, tons of potential. And it was her first season last year. And so he wanted birds for her. Well, we're hunting wild birds on public land. Like it's a not a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. But he, in his head, he's like, I got to get this dog birds. I got to get this dog birds. And as soon as you start thinking that, and he had the shots. And I'm like, after a while, it was just kind of a joke, like all season long. Like he's not going to hit them. So like we had to shoot him <laughs> and then send his dog in for him. But it... 
it was just between his ears. He can make, yeah. he can hit clay pigeons all day long. He can hit a freaking three pound rooster flying. He just couldn't do it because of that pressure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talked about the out of stage or out of state pressure. I mean, I did the same thing in, in Wyoming with the sage grouse. Like, how do you miss a bomber like that? But I did. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that whole, if I don't get it this day or the next, I have to go home and I'm done, you know? And so it, it it definitely puts a lot of pressure on yourself. Yeah. And you, you see that play out the other way too. When you, when you start the morning and there's always that like anxiety a little bit, like it, it, what if we go just blank all day? Cause it happens. But if you get that one good, you get like, you make a good shot right away in the morning or you see like one of your hunting partners do that, their mentality or your mentality changes for the entire day. Like the, the monkey's off your back. You're just like, I'm going to just enjoy it. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things about, if you have a, a really good dog and you're hunting a place you kind of know and you, you have confidence in, when you believe it's going to happen, you will just hunt better. This is, it's kind of embarrassing to admit to this and to tell people, but there's, there's always, uh, I always notice after a successful hunt, like I have, I feel different in the morning on the drive to that hunt. I just have, I'm in a better you know, mental state for whatever reason, I'm calm, I'm relaxed. And the days that I'm like a little bit agitated and like, not agitated, but just kind of worked up and, you know, excited, anxious, um, you know, and, and so I'll always look back and it's like, yeah, I was in a totally different mindset this morning. And it's really interesting to kind of look at that. Yeah. That's, that stuff matters. And it's, it's, it's something to be aware of, even if it's not something that's that easy to control. Yeah. Yes. It's always, it's easier to notice afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, I mean, it is, it is for sure. What do, what do you think? What do you think about the future? What do you think about the next couple of years? Like, is, are we, are we, are we positioning ourselves to, to be, to have good hunting? Are we, what are we doing? How are we doing? Yeah. You know, I think I, I sure hope so. I mean, it's, as far as like hunting numbers, I know this last year that, that some of the preliminary data have come up. And, you know, we're, we're seeing an increase of around 5% of hunters and really just the whole outdoor industry. There was an increase this last year. Um, and, you know, I, I say that first, because obviously, you know, the more people we have interested and the more people that we have um, engaged and passionate about it, the more opportunities there are going to be to build public access and wildlife habitat. Um, and so that that's important. Um, you know, will that trend continue once life kind of goes back, you know, the status quo? Um, it's hard to say. And, you know, regardless, I hope that the individuals that, you know, were newer or returning just continue to remember um, those spaces. I've heard a few, you know, just kind of side comments on, you know, birds that people have been seeing with, you know, a drier spring. And last year, bird numbers seem to be um, pretty good. I, I mean, from what I saw, they were phenomenal. Um, oh. I saw more birds last year than I, and not that I've been hunting my whole life, but I saw more birds last year than I have any year prior. Um, so if we have, you know, good weather conditions and that habitat is, you know, obviously vital, um, you know, regardless of the weather that, you know, hopefully we'll have, we'll have good numbers this year too. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, I am, I am too. You know, in back in April, the USDA up the CRP cap, from I think 21 million acres to 25 million acres. And then it'll step up by I think 2023 to 27 million acres. And that is it there, there, you know, you, you mentioned this, the weather and the spring weather and all this stuff, but the simplest way for us to get a whole bunch of birds out there on the landscape is, is good habitat and CRP qualifies. And so I feel, I feel pretty optimistic about the next, you know, maybe five or 10 years of this stuff. Like I, th I actually think that we have a, we have some really good opportunities coming up yet. It's, ex it's exciting. It's really exciting. And you have those private landowners that are, you know, taking advantage of some of these opportunities that, you know, it's, we can't do it alone. I mean, it's gotta be an all hands on deck to, to really try and improve this wildlife habitat. And it's beneficial for so many species. It's beneficial for the soil for air. I mean, there's just so many different things It checks all of the boxes. Um, so I agree. I think there's a lot of really, really exciting things happening and 
Um, I can't, I can't wait to hunt this year and then see just kind of how that trend continues. Yeah. I think, uh, just seeing, you know, essentially getting six or 7 million more acres of CRP out there in the next few years, that is a huge boost to upland, uh, you know, nesting habitat, wintering grounds that, and we've seen this in the past when we've had higher numbers of CRP, that's when we had amazing hunting. And so I, I think it just does portend really well. If you're sitting on a pupster right now and you're, you're looking out to the next decade, I think it's, I think it's going to be really good. And I, that, that, what you mentioned there with the walk-in land and the, the private land open to public, those programs, uh, and they are so, they're burning so hot in so many states right now is just because it's such a, a more cost-effective way to open up tons of access to people. It's such a welcome initiative. It's such a welcome movement. I mean, I, and it, it's interesting with that stuff because, you, you know, if you look from state to state, it's the same kind of programs, different rules, different regulations, different, you know, you might have to buy, like here in Minnesota, you have to buy a walk-in stamp for three bucks and then it opens up couple hundred thousand acres to you other states it's just built into the cost of a license or the funding comes from other wherever but the the gist of it's all the same is there's more and more land opening up to people to hunt and that's like that you know when you look at the most common complaints like i don't have a place to go i don't have access like that's being addressed and really you know this maybe this is a rabbit hole but when you when you see how upset people get if they're like if the DNR is like hey we're going to raise the fishing license one dollar or the small game license one people go nuts. But this is one of the few things like the the walk in stamp thing or when when it's a very clear connection between hey you're going to pay another dollar this year two dollars or non residents will pay ten bucks or twenty bucks for a habitat stamp. This is where it goes here's your dollars at work. I mean, that's been the big complaint in our country for a long time. It's like, because the money goes away and I don't, I don't know what I'm getting out of it. This <laughs> is, this is an easier connection to make. And it's, it's awesome if you like to hunt. Oh, I mean, it's, it's so amazing to me. I mean, not only are you getting to take advantage of, you know, hunting that area, but then, you know, again, like the overall quality of, you know, what it does for everybody, even if you don't hunt, it's improving water quality, it's improving air quality, it's wildlife habitat for everything from monarch butterflies to turkeys to deer to I mean, I think the more that we can make those connections for people, whether they're hunters or not hunters is really important. Um, and, you know, if you're not a waterfowl hunter, buy a duck stamp, if you're, you know, it just putting that, that, you know, education out there for people so that they can support those but I, I do laugh so hard with the, you know, when you mentioned like the dollar raise of a permit or a hunting license. And it's like, you know, I grew up with a, a father that's a big golfer. Um, I hate admitting this because apparently it's a stereotype, but I, I rode horses growing up. <laughs> yes, I am a horse person. Apparently that's a thing. Um, you want to talk about expensive hobbies, you know, that's, and I, you know, even calling hunting a hobby, it doesn't feel right to me because I think it's, it's a life choice. I mean, it, it encompasses more than a hobby does for me, but I, I just think it's one of the most inexpensive things that you can do that just truly impacts your life and not just your life, but it's making a difference on the landscape too. And I would gladly, you know, pay a dollar more, $2 more, whatever, just because I know that it's going to the right places. Yeah. And it, you know, you bring up something, two things there. Uh, Again, I'm not surprised at all that you were uh, into horses. Uh, the only dating advice my the only dating advice my dad ever gave me in my life was don't date a horse chick. They're all crazy. <laughs> That's why I'm still single. That was it. <laughs> uh, the the other thing there is, in fact, my girls were asking me how much a horse costs the other day. I'm like, I have no idea. A million dollars. Just on that. A million dollars. Just a round million for any horse out there. Uh, yep. I, and I was like, I don't, because we were talking about this this puppy we're getting, and uh, they were like, well, how much does it cost to buy a horse? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I've never horse shopped in my life. I don't really <laughs> like horses that much. I don't trust them. I don't like the way they side eye me. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but you bring up another point in in hunting. There are expensive things you can do. Like if you look at uh, traveling to big game hunt. It's expensive. Like I don't, mm -hmm. you're not going to buy an elk tag as a non-resident for under 650 bucks. Now, most of them are over a thousand bucks. You're going to play the points game. Um, 
you know, you buy, you, you look at new bows, new rifles, uh, camo. I mean, you can spend $4,000 on one camo suit now. I mean, it's bananas. Then you look at upland hunting and you, I, and I have to say this, you don't have to spend that. Like you, nobody has to spend that obviously to be successful. Then you look at upland hunting. You're like, okay, you get your dog, right? Well, you're going to get your dog anyway. And then, yeah, you might buy a good crate. You probably should. Uh, you know, you're going to feed it well, but it's even one dog's going to eat a bag of dog food a month. You know, like you're going to buy a vest, some brush pants, you know, you, you can buy an expensive gun and the, the, the upland hunting industry's certainly kind of leans on the expensive over-under manufacturers. Totally unnecessary. They're great. Totally unnecessary to have a good hunt. Like You don't need to go broke on a on a really, really quality gun to have good hunts. You can. I mean, it's there are reasons to buy one, of course. But you don't have to spend up, uh, it, despite how it kind of looks in a lot of the ways we portray upland hunting. Mm-hmm. You can really you really don't have to spend a lot of money to have an awesome experience out there. It's, this is like the cheapest hunting you'll have. It really is. And, you know, I personally wouldn't be as involved with it if it wasn't for the dog, but there's people who don't even use dogs or they just go with other people who have a dog, you know, it's a really good type of hunting to get into, to see if you like it. Um, You know, and the other thing that I tell people who are on the fence, if they want to hunt or not, period, you know, cause I'll, I'll tell them all the time. I'll get back to a story from Wyoming that you will love Tony, but you know, I tell them all the time about the things that you find while you're hunting and the sites that you see. And so I'll just say, come for a walk with me, just come for a hike with me. I'll carry the gun. We don't even have to shoot anything. You just get a feel for it. Um, and I think it's just a really great way to introduce newcomers. So I have to, I'm sorry, I'm going to take this in a totally different direction, but I just remembered this and we haven't talked about it yet. So in Wyoming, I was, and we had, it was like the third day, totally in my head, hadn't shot my sage grouse yet. And, you know, we were pretty much getting to the, the end of the trip. And so I was pouting, total pity party, just down on myself. And, but it was for a good reason, because I'm looking down at the ground at my feet and I see this tiny movement. I found a hatchling short-eared lizard. Oh my gosh greatest moment of the trip everything like that was the moment for me so i just had to sorry take this in a different direction and tell you about this uh so that was better than getting a sage grouse yes (laughs) did you get a sage grouse (laughs) i did i did um which was absolutely incredible and i mean was it better no i just feel like i can't compare the two because the the lizard was like this pivotal moment for me of like you know pull your head out of the sand, just like stop, stop being, you know, a Debbie Downer here and, you know, realize that this experience is amazing, regardless of if you bring a sage grouse back or not. Um, the sage grouse was incredible because obviously that's what we were there for. Um, not to mention, you know, their population is real all over the place. And, you know, I told myself going into it, I was going to go, if I got an opportunity to shoot a bird, great. Um, but that's, that's it for me with sage grouse, you know, I'm going to, leave that to others to pursue if they want to. So it was kind of this one and done trip for me. And uh, so very, very special. I mean, the whole trip was special. It's hard to pinpoint. So it's kind of a bucket list. You did it. Now you're done. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, What, what else is on that list? Ptarmigan. Ptarmigan is high on that list. So I have this, you know, similar to amphibian and reptile obsession with um, Arctic grayling. Um, they're just gorgeous fish. If, you know, anybody hasn't heard of those, just Google it. I cannot explain it and do it justice. They're just beautiful fish. Um, so my bucket list trip would be to go to Alaska and fly fish for grayling and then do a ptarmigan hunt. But, um, I need to win the lottery first or come up with a brilliant, um, business idea, which, which I'm working on currently to win the bet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> should, should we, should I talk to Bob St. Pierre and tell him to okay that for your hunt budget? Absolutely. Yeah. Why Bob, is he being so stingy with that? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, did you know, not to, to totally go, I, I'm really interested in uh, grayling as well. Like I, for two reasons, just, they are awesome. Like they're just, they're one of those fish that's just really cool. But also I think I could eat them and I'm allergic to fish. Mm-hmm. Except Weird. for, yeah, except for salmon and trout. And, okay, they're a salmonid. Yeah, so the 
hypothesis from the travel nurse who who gave me this idea was I'm probably allergic to mercury and fish in water that isn't moving uh, they will collect deposits of mercury in their fat. Uh-huh. And she said, probably not trout and salmon. And so far, both of those are true. And I keep looking at grayling and I'm like, I bet those son of a bitches are tasty and I could eat them too. That is fascinating. You're like a little like um, water quality indicator. <laughs> that's the, I, I don't know if that's a, that might be the weirdest compliment I've ever gotten. Well, it, I try. <laughs> it, it almost felt like an insult. I don't know where you were going with that. Um, no, it was definitely it was definitely a compliment. Okay, yeah. So I anyway, I've done a bunch of research on going to fish for them, and my business partner has a house in Anchorage. He's like, just come up, we'll go. And, you know, like it, like it's that simple. But I didn't realize this, but there are uh, they exist in small populations in Colorado, I think. Yes, so, a couple places out west. Yeah, you knew that. I've- I've got the inside scoop. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk off the off the air. But that being said, I mean it is so. And I know that you can find them in some high altitude streams in Wyoming as well. Um, I don't know that they get to the size that they would in Alaska just because of the you know where they're located. But it, it is one of those really fascinating stories just because they they used to be pretty prevalent in the United States and they need really cold, really clean, clean, high oxygenated water. Um, so it it brings out my my science nerd when I look at them too. So, <laughs> uh, I love it. Uh, how did, how did Yeti do last year? How'd you, she did really well. Um, she's a really, really neat dog. I'm really excited to just continue to watch her grow. Um, you know, so she went to, she, she's already been to Kansas. She's been to Wyoming. Um, I don't think she went to, no, she didn't go to South Dakota with us. Um, and then Nebraska, she's done prairie grouse and then in pheasant and quail, um, you know, and she's still, she's still learning. Um, it, it was really fun. You know, I've never had two bird dogs at the same time. And so to watch them together, um, you know, and she can range out pretty far when we get out in the sandhills and prairie grouse hunt, but it was really fun to watch her, um, hunt pheasant and quail. Cause she worked a lot closer and a lot more meticulously, um, whereas the older dog was making really wide sweeps. So I just, I mean, I loved having two dogs and watching how they interacted with each other. It was just a blast, but she had some really nice points. She's figuring it out. Um, I'm hoping this next year will just be, it'll be it for her. I think, I think she's going to really start to shine. Yeah. A good third year really helps them. It, it, the whole thing gels. Uh, how, how old's your older dog? She's six. Um, so she's just, I mean, prime time right now. And she is, uh, I don't know that I'll ever, you know, have a dog at her level again. I mean, her nose is just unreal. She'll pick up, you know, birds that plenty of other seasoned dogs run past. Um, you know, she's, she gets a little bit stubborn where she won't listen to you. If she's on a scent, good luck getting her called back. If it's not where you want her to go. Um, she's very, you know, thick scold in that sense and just does what she wants, but she will hold those birds for as long as it takes, even if it was days, you know, she's, so she's great nose and, and holds birds really well. Um, and she's just been a lot of fun to learn with. And I mean, she's been with me almost since the beginning. So we really kind of figured each other out, um, and figured out what we're doing alongside each other. So two, two GSPs wasn't enough. You picked up a foster dog too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a sucker. Um, I have a really good friend who is the director of a humane society and she knows that I'm a softie. Um, so she, she tends to um, get a hold of me if she's got a problem child. And, and so I have a little seven month old German um, shepherd mix. And I love German shepherds. Um, so she sent me this picture and I'm telling, it's like a Sarah McLaughlin commercial. I mean, this dog is just the cutest little thing ever. And like, well, how can I say no? And we had to literally wheel her out on a cart to get her out to my car. She won't walk on a leash. She won't, if you, you know, move her somewhere, she just flops down. She's so terrified of life. Um, but she's getting better. I've had her for almost a week now and she's, she's starting to walk through doors, which is amazing. That was very scary. Um, Do you know the backstory on her? Why she's so scared? I think just completely unsocialized. Um, She lived outside and I just don't think she had any human interaction. She's definitely one of those types of dogs where, you know, people will just automatically think there was some abuse. 
um, because of how scared she is. But I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to get very, very unsocialized dogs that have just been left to their own, almost to kind of just revert back to, you know, feral stray. Um, they can act like that too. So I think that that's probably all that it is, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Marissa, it's always so much fun to chat with you. Where can people see your writing and see what you're doing with uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? Yeah, so um, I get to, they still let me contribute um, to all the Quail Forever journals. I have a, a running column in there. Um, so if they become a, a member of Quail Forever, um, they can see my writing there. Or, um, you know, on the website, they can they can see me. I help run our Women on the Wing initiative. Um, and then also uh, my Instagram handle, the only reason I'm going to throw it out there is because I feel like it wraps this episode up really nicely, is Rose Hips and Turtles. And if you listen to the show, you'll know why I picked those two <laughs> words. Um, they can find me there too. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you, Tony. That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, thanks for listening.